Welcome to Fifth Wall's Fly on the Wall podcast, where we explore the shifts occurring in real estate, technology, and society that are driving our cities towards a more equitable, green, and tech-enabled future. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode, I sit down with Vishan Chakrabarty, a dean at UC Berkeley's College of Environmental Design and the founder of Practice for Architecture and Urbanism. Vishan discusses the impact cars have on our cities, shares ideas for what a carless Manhattan could look like, and explains why equity, sustainability, and human capital will drive the post-pandemic cities of the future. Enjoy the conversation. Vishan, thank you so much for joining. It's a pleasure to have you. Where are you coming in from today? My pleasure. I'm here in Berkeley, California. Nice, nice. I'm out here in, in snowy Utah, so... We're, you skiing? Uh, not skiing yet, but I think pretty soon there will be. Um, and, you know, I just want to give some background. Obviously, I saw your interview on The Real Deal about this kind of vision for a vehicle-less, car-less New York. And that was really what just, you know, instigated my interest in, in everything that, that you're doing. But maybe for people that haven't seen that, could you maybe just give a bit of background on yourself and you know, your background in design and urban planning? Sure, so I'm, a, I'm an architect and an urban planner. I've been working for about 25 years. I um, worked for uh, Mayor Bloomberg right after 9-11 uh, in the kind of reconstruction of Lower Manhattan. Uh, worked in the private sector for a while. Um, and then I started um, my own firm, Practice for Architecture and Urbanism, about five years ago. So I'm a practitioner and I've got an office in New York and then I'm the Dean of the Architecture School here at Berkeley. And so I kind of wear a couple of different hats. But one of the things that our firm has done consistently is every once in a while we do what we call an advocacy project that is not client driven, where we just think that our skills as architects and urbanists can like help people visualize things that are kind of hard to grasp otherwise. And we've teamed a couple of times now with the New York Times and the New York Times editorial board uh, a few years ago on this thing we did for Penn Station. And more recently, you know, we put a proposal to them about like, you know, here we are in this middle of this pandemic, people have a lot of questions about how will city life recover? What does it mean to have like um, density again, people in mass transit, all of these kinds of questions. and. I, you know, after 9-11, I had the same experience working in city government that like people were like, oh, no one will go back to cities. No one will ever build a tall building again. And that all turned to be a bunch of BS, right? Like, you know, cities are, they, they date back millennia for human beings. They're very much like human connectedness and being together as a society, I think is a very big part of who we are as a species. Um, but I do think after the pandemic that remote work, like the things, like what we're doing right now, they're just things that are just so much easier and more possible than they were before this pandemic. And I do think there are certain workers for whom, you know, that big long commute into the city won't make that much sense anymore. They'll want to work from home. And so I think there's two things that you got to think about coming out of the pandemic for a lot of big cities. How does the city stay competitive against remote work? 
And once you get there, what's the quality of life? Is it the same polluted, congested place that it was before the pandemic? Or is it something different? And as an architect, space is the first thing I kind of think about. And what we were able to illustrate is that if you remove private cars from the streets of Manhattan, kept, every, you know, kept Uber, kept Lyft, kept taxis, kept freight delivery, kept Amazon, kept buses, kept bikes, that you free up so much space just by the removal of the private car, not just on the roads, but private car parking and all of that stuff, that it affords you this opportunity to, to like move around the city much more quickly, much less traffic, much less congestion, much less pollution. If you spend much time in New York, you'll know that fairly frequently you have this indignity of walking by these huge mountains of trash bags. Right. right, because all the buildings just put the trash out in the sidewalks and it drives everyone crazy. I mean, here you are, you're in one of the richest cities in the world and like mountains of trash, really. And so when you free up the parking spaces, there's opportunities to put in new systems in place for trash, dis trash distribution, recycling, composting, and then things like fresh food delivery, homeless services, a whole bunch of other things that compete for that real estate that parking and private cars use up. And so we were able to do a series of these before and after uh, uh, kind of images and vignettes around the city and prove that like, not just for Manhattan, but for the whole region, commutes would be better. And I think it was actually really well received. Not, I got a lot of silence from the real estate community, but everyone else I think really received it really well. To me, a lot of what we envision for New York is like inevitable. If it's not going to happen next year, mark my words, it'll happen in the next 10 years. Because like Paris is already doing it. Anne Hidalgo, as the mayor, she's basically banned private cars from the heart of Paris. London's taken major steps in that direction. Stockholm, their cities in Latin America. Bombay is starting to do it on weekends. Like it's, this is a, a global thing. And so do you think we are, do you think the, the high watermark of vehicle ownership uh, in America is behind us? Meaning from here on out, we are, irrespective of what happens in New York, we are looking at a slow decline in the interest of automobile ownership. And I guess my question was, how does that intersect with autonomy, right? Which, you know, autonomous vehicles kind of create the ultimate example of transportation as a service like why would you own something and why would you leave something idle 95 percent of the day if it can be utilized do you think that we're looking at a world where i don't know what the number of cars in the united states is today where that just gets cut like in half or into a fraction of what it is today 20 years out you know i'm I've done a lot of work around autonomous vehicles. I'm less sanguine than a lot of people are that this is this revolution that's nigh. Um, what, what I think any, even the boosters will tell you is that automatic, uh, automated vehicles really only work well when they are around a, a totally automated vehicle environment. Right, um, and so we've seen like tech companies and other like in, in Mazdar and stuff in the UAE where they like try to create, create a cordon zone for only certain automotive technologies because they just don't play well with what are called legacy vehicles, right? So I think it's longer coming than people kind of think, but I do think that day will arrive. And yeah, at that point, 
what is the logic of owning your own car at that point? It's really expensive for most people. And it just, it's, as you said, it's horribly inefficient. It's not being used for most of the day. And plus, I think people are realizing that they need different cars for different things, right? Like you need a larger car because you're moving stuff or you just, you want more fuel economy on a different trip, whatever it is. But the idea that you need it is just, I think, gonna, gonna be less and less relevant. When you contemplated this kind of, you know, carless future for the island of Manhattan, let's say, um, one of the really interesting examples you gave in your interview was you were talking about Park Avenue, right? And kind of the, the original vision for Park Avenue, which was a, a park. I guess, what are some of the non-intuitive, non-obvious things that you can do with all that free space to make cities more inclusive, right? To solve some of the kind of systemic problems all cities are confronting today. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think there's a huge opportunity for community engagement. You know, if you, so New York City, and actually most cities around the world are about one third roadbed, which is incredible. Like if you think about it just from a pure real estate perspective, you take Tokyo, you take New York, you take London, you know, some of the most expensive real estate in the world, and you're committing a third of it to cars, right? And now if I go to you and I say, well, look, I'm gonna give you some substantial fraction of that back. I think especially in more residential neighborhoods, there's a huge opportunity for communities to get involved and say, well, you know, we wanna use that space for open space or a farmer's market or a playground or a senior center or whatever it is. Like, I just think there's a huge range of opportunity there. Cause I think in terms of that more equitable future, it's not just whether you design equity, it's whether the process makes people feel like they were part of it and they had equal say, right? And that's something that I think is really, really important that like, that you not only create all this space, you give this opportunity for neighborhood residents to really talk about what they want their city to look and feel like and be like, because I think it can be very different depending on the community. Yeah, and I guess today, right, in, in 2020, um, given where we are with the pandemic, but I think more long-term with virtual work and kind of remote work being something that is at the very least on the rise, right? Whether we want to say it's here to stay is probably TBD. But as you think about kind of how vehicles impact cities and then this, this unique kind of moment in time where many companies are reimagining their physical footprints and they're saying, well, we could let people work remotely. And that's in turn causing this, this almost demographic reshuffling that's happening uh, throughout America where it feels like certain cities are winners and certain cities are losers. I guess if you were advising New York today, what would be like the key things you would tell them to focus on? What should they be focused on that perhaps they're not? Well, to me, I mean, I would focus on, on, on two things. Uh, well, sort of three things actually. Sustainability, equity, and human capital. And let's take those in reverse order. New York sits in a milieu of all sorts of other cities where we're competing for human capital, right? And, you know, I was, 
uh, I was on a, a competitiveness for committee for New York a couple of years ago, and we were finding we were losing a lot of jobs, not to London and Tokyo, but to like Washington, D.C. and Boulder, Colorado, and like the young people we were trying to attract to New York to help build businesses and be great workers and all of that stuff were finding better quality of life that was more affordable in other cities around the country. Right. So that's number one. You're always sitting now in that competitive kind of framework. Right. Number two, this equity thing, you know, New York has a kind of self-imagination that statue in the harbor. We welcome our the poor, the huddled masses, but it's been really tough on the poor and the huddled masses over the last decade or two decades. And like rich people in New York have to start thinking about this more because their city, the city that has helped them to become so prosperous is going to stop functioning if teachers and firefighters can't afford to live there, if immigrants can't find decent housing working in a restaurant or a hotel. You know, like the city grinds to a halt if it's not working for everyone. Um, so there's an enlightened self-interest in thinking about equity. And then sustainability, I think New York has a huge, huge ability to lead, just like Mayor Bloomberg did, a sustainability conversation around the world. Because let's face it, national governments are broken, right? But it's the cities and the mayors that can really make dramatic impact at scale across billions of people in terms of green building policies, mass transit policies, and so I just think if you focus on those three things, sustainability, equity, human capital, and like our proposal was meant to be a, a thing that was, yeah, it was about sustainability and equity, but it was also about joy. It was about this idea that you could enjoy a higher quality of life if you ban private cars. And that for those workers you're trying to attract and retain, compete against remote work, compete against other cities, you want to say, what's going through that worker's mind? That worker wants to be in a place that feels joyous, feels sustainable, feels equitable. And so th that's, I think, the way New York government needs to think more and more. I think we've had a period where the government hasn't been thinking that way about what keeps New York attractive and competitive. Totally. And I really like those three pillars. And I want to come back to the sustainability one in a second. But if you just focus on the, the first two, just the competitiveness around knowledge workers, right? So kind of a, a big part of any city's tax base. And then you think about these intersecting issues of equality and inclusiveness of a city. Do you think this leads to an era where it almost puts cities in more acute competition with one another in a way that they always have been, obviously, right? Cities have always been in competition with one another at some level, but now the stakes are higher. And the reason I say that is I've read news about so many companies saying, oh, we're going to institute a work remote, you know, policy indefinitely. And so if you're a worker and you're deciding where to move, it's kind of like shopping for cities. And if you're shopping for cities, I imagine the cities that market themselves the best, in addition to actually effectuate real changes in the city at a governmental level and at a regulatory level, are going to win. Do you think we're entering an era of almost, I guess the way to say it is like, workers are going to start bringing their own cities to work, right? It's like the, you know, bring your own device to work. It's bring your own city to work. And so therefore it's a acute competition between these cities. Um, I, I'm a little skeptical 
of that in the sense that I think the companies that have announced that they're going to full remote workforces or 80% remote workforces are going to live to rue the day and will probably have to reverse course within a couple of years after widespread vaccine distribution. Because, uh, so like, I'm the collaborating architect on J.P. Morgan Chase's new headquarters in New York. And Jamie Dimon is going ahead full steam with their new headquarters building in the heart of Midtown. Why? Because he believes that he wants his workers together. He wants serendipity. He wants all of that stuff that comes from having workers together. And he, he also believes that fundamentally it's going to be a competitive advantage over other banks to attract the best and the brightest who want to be in that beautiful new building, want to be in the heart of New York City, and want to interact with their coworkers in ways other than Zoom calls. And I agree with you. I, I, I think that there's like many things there's almost been an over rotation towards you know the benefits of a virtual work environment and we're going to start to see cracks and limitations in that very shortly i just wonder whether if you're a city like boise right or you're a city like salt lake right here if if you're kind of very focused on growth what the right plan of attack might be today is to say a lot of Go a lot of google workers a lot of netflix workers a lot of JP Morgan workers, a lot of Goldman Sachs workers are about to shake loose from wherever they are, but they're gonna stay at their firms. If we can attract enough of them, we're gonna have a Goldman Sachs or a Google office right here in Boise within three to five years because Google is gonna recognize they need to have that office environment and we're gonna have critical density. So it's almost like a, it almost feels a little bit like the freemium software model intersecting with like urban demographics in a fascinating way. Uh -huh. Um, I'm, I'm curious also, you, you mentioned sustainability and, you know, New York has, I think, been a prime example of like, we just, you know, we just lived through probably the most environmentally regressive uh, federal administration in recent memory. And by all accounts, it appears that the, the incoming administration is going to be the most environmentally progressive. Um, and New York and Los Angeles kind of bucked the trend with these carbon neutrality laws that almost put their cities back in the Paris Agreement at a local level. Mm -hmm. Do you think that um, sustainability is something that when people are evaluating where they want to live becomes really, really important in attracting these younger millennial residents? And how do they determine that? How will they evaluate cities in that regard? You know, look, I think not just millennials, but Gen Z, I think these are generations that are really cognizant of the environments around them. And I think they will be making those value judgments. And I think it's going to tie to both sustainability and equity. They're going to be looking for places that have policies that say they want to be part of a shared sensibility or a shared value set around sustainability and equity. So they want to know they're part of places, institutions, governments that have these forward-thinking policies, which is why I would argue that what we proposed with the car thing would be a huge attractor for that kind of a person, right? That they that say, wow, I, I, I want to live there. I want to live in a place that's forward-looking, that is thinking about the future. Right, you right? want that alignment with the place you live. 
Right, but also you want to be part of the future. You see this more and more. It's really interesting, you know, coming out of this last election, you know, one of the things I worry about is by 2050, 70% of Americans will be represented by 30 senators. And the reason that's true is that most young people are gravitating into set, not just the gentrified coasts, but into like seven or eight mega regions around the country, like Charlotte and Atlanta, Cascadia, Texas, the triangle of the big cities in, in Texas. And th those regions don't really have representation in the federal system uh, for the kind of policies and infrastructure we're talking about. They have, so, so for example, even though they might have the majority of the population, they can't draw down the federal funds for new mass transit systems, for instance, or greener energy systems. And so to me, there's a lot of coming political tension around that. And I think the interesting thing for the private sector to do is where can the private sector fill in the gaps, right? Like where can the private sector come in and say, we don't need the federal government to fund this new mass transit system we're going to figure it out through electric ride share in a city that doesn't have private cars, right? And you don't need a federal dollar to do that, right? Like, because that I think will be where cities will start getting a, a huge competitive edge if they start thinking that way. And how do you think about just the private sector's responsibility thinking about, for example, real estate as an industry? It's kind of this, you know, with respect to climate change, something we talk a lot about and we have a whole strategy geared around is that the real estate industry is actually the single largest contributing industry to climate change, right? If you yeah. look at electricity consumption, if you look at CO2 emissions, if you look at raw material consumption, it's just massive. And how, I guess my question is, what advice would you have for a real estate owner today that just has no point of view on sustainability, which despite what, what most of them say, they don't, right? And they certainly don't have a plan. What advice would you be giving them today around like, how do you set yourselves up, not just for the next four years of a Biden administration, that's probably gonna be pretty progressive around these issues, but for the next two decades? You know, you talk about sustainability in real estate, concrete and steel, right? Horrible, right? Even during the pandemic, global, global carbon emissions haven't dropped that much this year because, and a huge part of it's attributable to concrete and steel, because we had a real estate pipeline coming into the pandemic. And so all the concrete plants and the steel plants are still going and they, they, they're very carbon intensive processes, right? So the whole architecture industry wants the real estate industry to start getting much more serious about things like cross laminated timber, right? Geothermal, like, we know how to build beautiful net zero buildings today. We don't need a single new advancement in technology to build great net zero buildings, but try to get real estate people to think about that past their sort of first cost mindset. It, it's just incredibly hard to get them to do that. Yeah. So I think these kinds of discussions are really healthy because like you, you gotta break through the old model and, and it's not really happening. Like you said, there isn't a plan. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, this is what we spend a lot of our time focused on. And so I'd love to collaborate on how we can influence the real estate industry yeah. to, to 
reconceptualize itself, reconceptualize its role in the environment, reconceptualize its role in inclusivity and demographics, reconceptualize its role in the urban economy and public health. I mean, all of these things, I think the real estate industry is now just now grappling with. And I actually think it's exciting. I, I have a certain optimism about it, that, that the industry can be influenced, but it sounds like we're both working on the same problem. So, Vishan, this yeah. is so interesting to chat with you. Thank, thanks so much for your time. Sure, it's my pleasure. It was really fun to talk. I think we're very aligned, absolutely. Awesome, well, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fly on the Wall. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.